Welcome everyone. Uh, I am Daryl Missy, the director of the Children's Division, and we are here for our uh, July podcast. Uh, the topic this this month is going to be a family first. Everybody's heard about family first. Uh, we say family first all the time. It, it comes up a lot, and I don't know if any of us really know what it is. Uh, and we're going to find out today. Uh, we have uh, today with us Lauren, who's worked hard on this. Lauren, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone out there in podcast land. Hi, I'm Lauren Hall. I'm the FFPSA prevention lead, so hopefully can answer some of those questions of what in the world is Family First. Okay. And FFPSA, if you say that, that's the Family First Prevention Services Service Act. Act. Yes. All right. So uh, what I've learned since I've come to uh, Children's Division is you have to have a full dictionary of uh, acronyms <laughs> of things that just rattle off because you don't know what they are. But Boy, it makes us sound like we know what we're talking about. So, uh, so FFPSA, that's the topic today. Joni, why don't you give us some history about all this? So FFPSA was passed in 2018, and what really made it kind of a landmark piece of legislation was its use of funds, because normally 4E funds are triggered when a child comes into custody, and for the first time, FFPSA allowed states to use 4E funding on the front end for prevention services, which makes it uh, pretty historic as far as legislation goes. But, of course, they don't just give these funds with no kind of caveats or requirements. So there were very specific things states have, have to do to be able to get those prevention funds. And it was really showing a shift in kind of the historic thought of just investigation and taking kids into custody for safety and really focusing more on prevention. So there's kind of two pieces when you think of family first. There is the back end where we think of um, residential QRTP, Qualified Residential Treatment Program, people have heard a lot about, and that kicked off October 1 of last year for all states that went into effect. And it gave very specific kind of things that we'll talk about in a minute around QRTPs. And then for states, if they wanted to use those prevention funds, those 4E funds on the front end, you have to have an approved prevention plan for your state approved by ACF. And again, we'll get into some of those details and what needs to be included in that plan in a minute. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, what Family First is. But first and foremost, it's a funding mechanism. Um, and then, of course, with requirements, how to gain and access those funds. Well, and it also, it reflects a philosophical shift, doesn't it? I mean, a massive philosophical yes. shift. Yes, Because, you know, we had, we had uh, Jerry Milner, who was the head of the uh, <coughs> Children's Bureau uh, during the last administration, and when all of this was passed, he... He goes around and talks and basically says that you get what you pay for if you if you listen to talks you, you get and so we we have paid for removal and foster care and we've gotten that throughout the country. This is an acknowledgement, I think, although just the beginning, I believe, of saying that hasn't that hasn't worked perfectly. That's been difficult and challenging, and uh, we need to to go in a different direction. So it's an it's an exciting thing. And Joni, you talked a little bit about the requirements with Family First and how we kind of get to that prevention side. Can you talk a little bit about some of those requirements and why states are finding it so challenging at this point to implement? Sure. I think as most states, your ability to kind of pivot and implement Family First depended on where you were as a state with your residential population and where you had kiddos, how strong maybe you already how strong of a foundation you already had with prevention in your state. 
and that then in turn kind of guided you on how much you would have to build towards family first. So if you think of it like a triangle, which we've used this analogy, I think, throughout our time uh, working with family first, you're trying to do several things at once and they have to work in tandem to kind of work. You're wanting to move kids out of residential, but if they are in residential, you have to have them in a qualified residential treatment program, which in and of itself has several kind of requirements on what that what that facility should look like. And historically, at least in Missouri, a lot of our facilities didn't meet that mark. They were too large to meet that mark. So they want to move kids out of residential. In turn, you need to build up more community settings to keep kids in their communities and out of residential. That involves not just uh, wraparound support setting or support services like um, counselors, therapists, program, day treatment programs, things like that, but also your TFC homes. Um, it's not a jump. We all know that we really need more therapeutic foster homes. It's a challenging population, and it really takes a lot of dedication and commitment to find um, those service providers. And if kids aren't in residential and it's a natural step down into a TFC home, and so it's really building up those types of settings as well, and then also building your prevention services to keep kids out of care, to keep kids from entering and helping families before they ever reach the child welfare kind of door. And so that's a lot to ask for. It's a lot to do, and they all have to work in tandem to really impact the population that you're looking to serve. One of the things that I, that I'm sure everyone's heard about, they're familiar with, one of the things on that residential side was when kids come into care, if there is some sort of indication they may need residential, they need an independent assessor to do an evaluation to really speak to if they need that, that kind of uh, setting or not. And there are several different timelines that have to be met, it's partnerships with the courts that have to work with that. And then again, you have to have those facilities for kids to go to and depending on where states we're at, they may not. You may have to do a lot more work to, to work with providers to build that type of setting. And then on the prevention end, each state had to come up with a candidacy definition to put in their prevention plan. So who's going to be eligible for those services? You have to choose the prevention programs off of the 4E Clearinghouse, showing that those programs have been vetted and they're evidence-based, they've been proven to be effective and get their desired results. And each state has to have the infrastructure to support that because there is a lot of oversight and monitoring that has to go into the providers that we contract with for those services that we include in our plan. And the state also has to make the commitment to match the funds we receive because it's a 50-50 4E match and the state has to commit to match the other 50% um, of those funds. So in a really quick nutshell, that's a lot of the challenges. Well, I have a big ticket question that's going to come up in a minute, but I'll start with kind of a smaller question before I ask the, the million-dollar question. But looking at prevention, you know, each state has to have their own definition for candidacy. So what does Missouri's prevention candidacy definition look like? Yeah, so this is really an area where the federal legislation gave opportunity for states 
to really look at their populations, identify their areas of need, really look at their target populations and who these services would best serve. FFPSA itself states that prevention services can be provided to a candidate for foster care, so those youth who are at imminent risk of entry into foster care but can remain safely at home with these prevention services. Um, it allows prevention services for pregnant or parenting foster youth, as well as parents or care can caregivers for those youth that I just mentioned. So in Missouri, what we did is we did um, data analysis and we also collaborated with our statewide advisory team. We wanted to look through to see what would those target populations really be? Who could we really serve best? And so through that process, we came up with five target population groups that we think would best be served by FFPSA prevention services. That includes children identified as needing services through an active investigation or assessment or who are already receiving services from us, whether they be court involved or not court involved. Children involved in a newborn crisis assessment where the mother or child had a positive toxicology screening during pregnancy or at the time of birth. It also includes children, whether they be pre or postnatal infants of pregnant or parenting youth currently in foster care or who have exited foster care within the past five years. We wanted to make sure that it had a little bit of opening as well for um, some of those post-permanency youth. We also have children who have exited foster care through reunification, guardianship, or adoption within the past five years, and who are at risk of disruption, as well as siblings of children in foster care who still are residing at the home, um, and there may be some identified safety concerns, and they may be at risk of entering foster care as well. So we really feel that our eligibility in Missouri is very broad. It's exciting to think about the reach that we can have, the families and the children who we can serve. But we also have to keep in mind that these services and involvement in an FFPSA prevention case are voluntary. So keeping that in mind, it's an exciting opportunity, but families are still, um, it's voluntary for them to be involved in these particular services. And so with that, as Joni mentioned earlier, um, it's really exciting because this legislation is a funding mechanism. We get that 50% match for the services, but there's also opportunity for a 50% match on the administrative costs as well. So we'll have those FFPSA prevention cases, and the state can get reimbursement. And that helps lead into really the true intent of um, FFPSA and prevention as a whole, growing and developing over time and expanding. That's really exciting, Lauren. I think, you know, when people, I keep hearing, well, what's your definition? What's your definition? And you think of kind of your textbook, one or two lines of, you know, this is what this is. And it's really short and succinct. But in a definition and how involved this, you know, this language is, it's, there's a lot to it. And the question that keeps coming up from partners and um, from legislature and our, our team is, where are we at with the prevention plan? So, Lauren, where are we at with the prevention plan? Or Joni? <laughs> yes, that is a big ticket question that's asked a lot. So um, Missouri, again, kind of going back to looking at what we needed to build in Missouri to really have an effective, approvable plan, initially submitted their prevention plan at the end of the first quarter of 2021. And that was, um, in a way, specifically to, for a funding opportunity because ACF had come out and said they would backdate no matter when your plan is finally approved, they'll backdate it to when you first submitted it, if it was at the end, by the end of that first quarter. So at that time, we kind of put together, again, to maximize that funding opportunity of what we wanted to do, where we saw ourselves going. Typically with ACF, states will kind of go back and forth with edits on that plan for an average of nine months. It could be a year. 
because they're very specific in what they're looking for, but they don't necessarily always give you that upfront. They want to see what you come up with first. So we submitted it um, initially at um, Mar the end of March 2021. We resubmitted it. There were a couple changes in the state that kind of had us make some pretty drastic changes to that plan. And I had already, there's a lot involved with FFPSA. I've already forgotten to mention on the clearinghouse of the allowable programs, you have three categories, substance use, mental health, and home visiting. And as everyone knows, home visiting services um, moved to DESE and that kind of impacted our ability, at least initially, to include those specific programs to home visiting because as the 4E agency, we have to provide the oversight for it. So that kind of got put on the back burner when that passed. We really changed it to try and look at what we're seeing trends in our current cases and as many will know it's challenging behaviors um, lots of mental health there's substance use involved so we really tried to target on those programs so we resubmitted in April of this year and we actually just this week just yesterday maybe got the edits back from that plan that we will be kind of tweaking because it really went from here's what we want to do and then the what the plan we just submitted was here's how we're going to do it and it really had to get into the details of operations how we see that looking because ultimately what ACF wants to feel I think is the confidence that as a state we can execute that so they want very detailed plans and Missouri we focused on a phased in approach kind of a slow roll piloting in some areas with providers that were either already doing those services or interested in those services and we were also fortunate enough to have some line items in the budget specific to rolling out family first which is really a mechanism to jump start those plans and those pilots but I'll let Lauren talk specifically about some of the programs that are included in our plan. So Joni, has, as you mentioned earlier, there's the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse, and that's really our menu that we can select from, if you will, that um, evidence-based programs and models have been reviewed on, they've been rated, and that gives us the option of what we can incorporate into our state-specific prevention plan and how exactly it is that we plan to have those services provided. And that particular clearinghouse continues to grow and expand over time as well. A theme that you'll see is that prevention is something that's going to continue to evolve, um, and with that what we're able to select from. But we started the process of thinking, where in the world do we begin? How do we select these services? Um, so in 2020 and in 2021, we completed a request for information. So we put out some information seeking to evaluate kind of the landscape in Missouri, what's currently provided by service providers. So we utilized that information to kind of um, solidify where we're going to begin for our step one, if you will, where we're going to start with prevention. And as Joni, as you mentioned, really targeting some of those um, difficult behaviors that we're seeing and leading into some other areas as well. So the initial services that we included in this particular version of the prevention plan are brief strategic family therapy, parent-child interaction therapy, functional family therapy, and multi-systemic family therapy. So it sounds like a lot of family therapy, so I'll give a little bit of an overview of each one. Um, brief strategic family therapy is also called BSFT for short. It uses a structured family systems approach to treat families with children or adolescents 6 to 17 years who, are, who display or are at risk for developing problem behaviors, including substance abuse, conduct problems, and delinquency. 
Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, also referred to as PCIT, is a program for two to seven-year-old children and their parents or caregivers that aims to decrease externalizing child problem behaviors, such as defiance or aggression, increase positive parenting behaviors, and improve the overall parent-child relationship. Functional Family Therapy, also referred to as FFT, because everything has an abbreviation in alphabet soup, um, is a short-term prevention program for at-risk youth and their families. It aims to address risk and protective factors that impact the adaptive development for 11 to 18-year-old youth who have been referred for behavioral or emotional problems. And then multisystemic therapy, MST, is an intensive treatment for troubled youth delivered in multiple settings. It aims to promote pro-social behavior and reduce criminal activity, mental health symptomology, out-of-home placements, and illicit substance use in 12 to 17-year-old youth. So we really tried to uh, make sure that there was a broad spectrum of ages of youth that were involved in the initial program selection. And I would add, I think that, you know, our any state's prevention plan is kind of a living document because as programs are added to the clearinghouse, you'll amend your plan as we pilot and we learn more from that. And maybe we realize operationally we need to tweak or change something, you'll amend your plan. So it's never a one and done. These are just our starting point. I forget how Lauren terms it. It's not it's it's not our destination, it's just where we're starting. Well and everybody everybody knows how much I love this. <laughs> I mean everybody who's talked to me knows that this the the idea of us actually doing prevention, uh, getting out and engaging with families and, and avoiding all the trauma and pain that go along with uh, coming into our system is just the, the best idea ever. So for a guy like me, you know, the temptation, obviously, is to just full throttle, open it all up. Well, why don't we just take the clearinghouse and, like, to get the whole list of everything and do it all at once? That's, that obviously is probably as ridiculous as it sounds. But why not? I mean, why? what, what, what holds us, what prevents us from just doing that? No, I think that's a good question that we've been asked that before. And I think you have to really understand that it's not just about picking a program and training someone in it or contracting with a provider that says they're doing that. We have to contract with the model purveyors, so those uh, entities that quote-unquote own those programs and develop them to come on site and may do fidelity monitoring, teach us to do fidelity monitoring, and Lauren can get into the weeds of what exactly that entails, but I mean just overarching, it's a lot more than just contracting with people that do it, or even saying, I think the hope is one day, not right now, <laughs> but um, you know, we can look at some programs that our own staff can do, but we then have to, as the owner, as the 4E kind of entity, we are the ones responsible for monitoring those services and making sure they're being done to fidelity, but Lauren can get into a little bit more detail about the behind the scenes things that have to happen. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of behind the scenes work, behind the curtain, if you will. Unfortunately, we can't just refer a family for the service, get the service provided, say, all right, we're going to get the federal reimbursement. We have to make sure that the right services are being provided to the right families, that we're having the right outcomes, and that we're reporting the right data to the feds as well. Um, So there's a lot of systems and processes that have to be created for that to occur. As Joni mentioned earlier, there's contracting that has to happen with that model purveyor as well as with the service provider. So that model purveyor is really who owns that model that they may have created it. And as I mentioned earlier with the RFI, we may have some existing service providers 
who are providing the service, but then we also have some who are interested in development as well. So it's kind of a fine balance of trying to um, identify where it's existing as well as work to have development and create it because we know that we don't have everything present that's on the clearinghouse um, and we want to build and grow to that. But we have to work to make sure that the programs are being delivered how they're supposed to be. So Joni touched base upon fidelity monitoring, and that's really making sure that the um, that they're being delivered in the manner in which they were developed, that the outcomes are reached that were targeted for that particular service, that the rules and the established model are being conducted in the manner in which that particular developer created them to be. So that way we can make sure that we're working with families in the correct manner. And unfortunately, there's not a standard process. Each particular model and service has its own fidelity monitoring. And so that in and of itself creates quite a bit of um, work and not having one standardized process. Um, We also have to work to make sure that we have overall um, CQI and data analysis in place. We have to make sure that we are assessing the outcomes and that we have the appropriate reporting requirements in place to submit that information to ACF in order to receive that 50% reimbursement. In addition to that, one thing that we haven't gone into is the ratings on the clearinghouse. Particular models are submitted for review to the Prevention Services Clearinghouse and they may receive particular ratings. And that kind of guides us in additional um, qualifying pieces that have to be conducted as well. If we select to utilize a service that has not received a well-supported rating, there's also the requirement to develop a rigorous evaluation strategy. And so that is something that farther has to be developed in addition um, for some of those particular services. So overall, Each individual service has a lot of specific needs that we have to make sure are tailored to make sure that we're getting the appropriate assessments completed, the appropriate outcomes, and the appropriate reporting mechanisms. And there's unfortunately no one-size-fits-all, so there's a lot of behind-the-scenes for each of those individual services. So that's a lot. (laughs) Um, So how can staff learn more and keep up to date since Family First is kind of ever evolving and there's so many pieces to it? Well, I was going to say, is everyone thoroughly confused? (laughs) Because it is a lot. And I think in a lot of ways it's kind of been simplified because it's so much. But um, to really, especially now is a good point or time to start communicating more about it since we're entering into hopefully the pilot phase further in this fiscal year. So there is a website that that we have. Um, it's housed uh, kind of under the department website umbrella that we are currently redesigning and updating to be more impactful for clients and providers and even our own staff to kind of see what's happening and, and where we're at as a state. We also try and utilize communication channels with our various internal leadership, whether that's our 10 a.m. Monday leadership calls, uh, the CAN, our FCS, or AC work groups. I think um, there used to be some regional convenings and COVID really impacted those, but we're looking to start those back up in the fall. We have our monthly statewide meeting with um, not only our internal staff, but external stakeholders as well. So we're constantly trying to maximize our communication methods we currently have and I really feel like into the coming year you're going to see a lot more movement on that because really while we've been developing the plan COVID significantly impacted planning um, it kind of stalled out I feel like and so I feel like we're going to go from like zero to a hundred really quickly 
We get invited to other groups as well, such as the Foster Parent Advisory Group, um, CFSR Committee, and so we're always happy to talk about um, where things are in planning as well as where we are going, should there be particular questions with other groups. And so we've made sure to have availability in those additional groups to share information. It is a lot, but again, like you said, I, I think it's really just the beginning. And, yeah. it, and it's more its more than just we've got a program and we've got this therapy and that therapy and these are the things that we can do. As we look through that clearinghouse and we see what our needs are, I think we'll make adjustments. And I don't think Family First is all of it right. uh, because we're working, we're working on a lot of things uh, with regard to directions we want to go in the coming years and, and how we can uh, work on prevention and, and take care of people safely in their homes. And this is, this is one piece of that, but there's more of that that we're doing on our own. This is about, this is about the federal funding, right? And right. so uh, hopefully it's going to grow. There's going to be more. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, we're going to do great stuff. So uh, anybody have anything else that they want to talk about today? I would just say for any staff listening, you know, we work with this every day and constantly I'm calling Lauren or she's calling me or to talk through something because it is confusing. And there's a lot of times that it's like, okay, help me, help me understand this, talk this through with me because it's just, it's a lot and it it touches a lot of things. So I would say, you know, as we have questions, you know, feel free to route them up because no one is going to get this quickly because it's taken our own state and most states years to kind of understand and develop a concept for it. Well, I want to thank everybody out there who's, who uh, took the time to, to listen and participate with us today. Uh, hopefully there's, uh, there's going to be more of this coming. So thank you all very much and uh, I want to wish you all the best.